I'm Margot Neal. I'm Siobhan McHugh. And this is Heart of Artness. A journey into the cross-cultural stories that animate the Aboriginal art world. So this episode, we're talking about the people who orbit around the Aboriginal art world. It's quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, I was just gobsmacked. They range from people with no money at all, the kind of idealistic young backpackers, through to sophisticated establishment people who like to collect the art and all kinds of people in between. The good, the bad, the ugly. Mm. And it has changed over the decades. You see, Aboriginal art has only become a burgeoning industry that you know outpaces the white art industry in many ways. Um, Aboriginal production is used as a flagstaff for Australia. Look at the Olympics. Look at you know the Olympics in '56, the Olympics in in 2000. So it's it's Aboriginal visual production in that sense, or cultural production, has been seen to be many things to many peoples for a very long time. But the fact that it's such an active industry now and is taken up, as you say, by cultural people who are interested in the culture, the corporate types, the commercial, the ones who are trying to make a lot of money out of something while it's hot, um, to people who are like philanthropist types who want to support Aboriginal people through, through buying and promoting their art, to backpackers who buy little mementos but actually work out there in the industry as we know it, you end a move, for example... It's like a yeah, a big hive. There's the queens and the kings and the drones and the workers and the, the whole lot. But in terms of the white people, it has as I said, it has changed over the years. When I first went to Arnhem Land and remote communities in the seventies, it was very different than it is now because it was a very sluggish, hardly started industry. And we used to then say, Oh, the only people who get out here is missionaries, mercenaries or misogynists. And it was sort of the three M thing. So in these days, there's a lot of other ethical issues and there's art code and all sorts of things wrapped around all this. But um, you will get you you will get variations of each of those categories I spoke of. And there's a lot of people out there running away from things and trying to find their spirit. And I can't help but thinking of Kim Mahood's article, that classic article. It's, was it the, I think it was the Griffiths Review. The Griffiths Review. That's right are called car are like Toyotas. White fellas are like Toyotas. You, you use them up and then discard them and get some new ones. So there's no doubt there's some of that. And then there's some of these wonderful, fantastic, long-term, deep relationships just between people regardless of their, their culture. OK, well, we'll put a link to Kim Mahood's article up on the website. And here's the episode, Meet the Matrix. <laughs> How about the surf? Is that sounding... Can you hear that coming through? No, no, that's fine. Do you want to explain what's happening? Well, it's all down to Bonnie, the bad dog. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we're having to record the next few podcasts here at my place because we can't get to the studio because I have got a broken leg. And uh, you might hear occasionally the sound of surf. We're on the east coast. We're south of Sydney near Wollongong and what happened was a few days ago I was walking Bonnie and she saw this other dog which was a barrelly little thing I think it was a boxer maybe a staffy 
and she growled at it and the next thing it charged and I mean I've been at the bulls in Pamplona it was like dump da dump da dump came right at me and it dropped me and turned out I landed on my knee and I broke my kneecap (laughs) it's all an act so anyway she hasn't had a walk with me since and I'll be in a leg splint for the next six weeks the show though will go on and so here we are with the next episode done from my living room it's called meet the matrix and it starts in alice springs so take it away dallas come a little closer up the back there welcome everybody walk up dallas now come closer (laughs) no heckling come on come in 2010 raft came to Alice Springs and it was the strong work of this region that that brought me here and I think it was Desert Mob that was instrumental. When you enter the world of indigenous art you start to realize the artists are the hub of a vast matrix of people whose interests range from commercial to very personal. There are the dealers of course like Dallas Gold who runs Raft Gallery in Alice Springs. Serious collectors who are driving the market of indigenous art are just seriously hooked. They, they've got more than enough for their wall space. They, they use their collection in philanthropic ways and they also fund art centres directly with different projects. They're just deeply in love with work. They're seriously hooked and I, I'm like a drug pusher. I feed that, that habit, but we share a passion. And there are much smaller operators like Judy Muller. I ran into her hawking central desert art amidst veggies and cheeses at Lilyfield Growers Market in Sydney. My aim is to get Aboriginal art into ordinary people's homes. Therefore, I choose pieces that are, have, have of good value. I don't go for the high-end art. I go for the middle and low-end art, emerging or totally unknown artists. What kind of price range are you talking about? Oh, from 50 bucks through to... I don't normally have anything that's in excess of $1,000. There are crucial players I'd never really thought about before, like Mark Chapman, whose art supplies shop in Alice Springs might be the biggest in Australia. Indigenous artists use all sorts of different ways of applying the colour to the canvas or the surface, you know, from using found stick which evolved into using skewers from food shops you know like bamboo skewers become a great way for dotting paintings but you need a material that's both going to be fluid and be able to get onto the surface. And there are artists, indigenous and non, engaging in conversations and creative practice. Like Ruark Lewis, a conceptual artist from Sydney, whose work with the Yolnu artist Breoa Munninger and others was featured in Monaco. He's recording um, water uh, scapes rather than landscapes. Um, he's a, um, a sea painter. So I'm very interested in that idea um, of, of, you know, the, the politics of land, obviously, has been a big subject for all Australians for last uh, since land rights movement how you can be in the landscape without trespassing we'll hear from these diverse players and more over the next two episodes they've all got fascinating stories passion seems to be the common denominator if you live in the world of indigenous art 
So let's start with someone whose blend of enthusiasm and expertise enthralled me on my first day at the Buku Larangay Centre in Yirikala. Speaking from my paternal line, my ancestry is Celtic and Māori. That's Jeremy Cloak, a musician who's been coming to Arnhem Land for over 20 years. I initially came here through wanting to learn more about the didgeridoo, as I knew it then, um, the yiraki, as it's called here. So I immersed myself with the yiraki makers um, in the process, learned a bit of yongamata and learned a lot about the other aspects of the Yonga world. One American one year said that the didgeridoo is Australia's roving diplomat. Are you from Germany? No, Switzerland. Switzerland? Yeah. Oh. It's and better than Germany. <laughs> different, different. <laughs> and are you, obviously you know how to play the didgeridoo? Yeah, I, I'm a player and uh, I, uh, I sell it. And there's a big interest? Yes. I do that since uh, 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of sparks a mystical interest um, amongst outsiders or, or people from outside of Australia to Aboriginal culture. Different uh, character, tone, quality. How many will you take back this time, do you think? Maybe 50? <laughs> I think 60? about uh, 42. 42, okay. It turns out 42 is the perfect number of yiraki to fit an airline cargo space. Jeremy is now a leading authority in yiraki and teaches the instrument all over the world. He also spends time in Indonesia and has a side interest in collecting African ritual masks. But for about four months every year, he blends into Yolnu culture, working as an informed jack-of-all-trades at the art centre. You can be a mentor one day, you can be doing an interview the other day, you can be out in the bush cutting bark for someone the next day, you can be speaking publicly about an exhibition the next day, you can be documenting someone's artwork, you can be helping a senior person um, deal with her health issues the next day. You know, it's, it's just so multifaceted. You can the, be you're going to be packing up things, yeah, as I saw yeah, you. You can be making noise with the packing gun, shipping things off to <laughs> to um, an exhibition. Ultimately, the success and the collaboration between two cultures, essentially, so non-Aboriginal and Yongo in this sense, is based on willingness on, of both parties to work together. That's, that's fundamental. The Yonga recognise that and we recognise that. So we meet and we take the best of both worlds. If you have a, a naive understanding of Aboriginal art, you can look at it and think she's rough. Jeremy often does this kind of spontaneous art criticism for visitors to the gallery. But then if you have an astute awareness of Yongle composition and um, understanding of the older forms. You know, it's spontaneous, it's robust, it's vigorous. Um, and that's our job, I think, our part of the collaboration is to actually educate people on what defines 
a good piece of Aboriginal art? How do you look at it? How do you value a bark painting? Yes, sometimes they have cracks. Yes, they're painted in, on the, a natural medium which will bend and warp and change over time. It's a piece of bark. Sometimes it tries to curl around again. Um, the, the painting, the, the, the pigments are all from the earth. You know, they age, they get a patination, they get a discoloration that is part of their beauty. They're organic. They're entirely from the land. So it's about building that um, knowledge base amongst people, educating them and saying, well, hey, look, have you thought about it like this? You're looking at it from a Western perspective, but it's an Aboriginal concept that you're discussing here. So let's step into this world and learn about this for a while and then actually understand what's being painted here, who this person is, how they've grown up, what influences each line, and then assess your value of each piece. Um, getting that concept um, through to people and that essentially it's about identity. Um, if that switch happens, then it's far more than just a pretty picture. It's, this, it's a philosophical, academic... Um, world that you plunge into. As we talk, Jeremy's kinship mother delivers a snack, freshly roasted yam. Where'd you like some? I'd love some. Mm. Have here. a little snack. Mm. One off. Mm. Mm. Like all the non-Yolnu living here long term, Jeremy's been adopted into the clan system. There's no term for friendship. Everybody's family. So everybody has an identity. So that's one way in which you'll embrace um, people who choose to live here or, or have close working relations here. This snack is more than just a treat. Yam is actually Jeremy's traditional name, Gungari. It's not something that thrilled him at the start. I was like, why'd you call me Yam? Why's my name Yam? Uh, why didn't you call me, like, Thundercloud or Brazen Spear or so, you know, like this, this ridiculous kind of childish response to being given this name Gungri, which means yam. And then as I learned more, I, I realised what it actually represented metaphorically. It's a power source. It's something that the ancestral figures eat. They consume, they feel power and they're sustained. With. So I was like, oh, that's beautiful. And it's connected to the Dadalal, one of the first uh, Yiricha um, Yiraki, a sacred ceremonial instrument. The two main ceremonies that we film are Dappi, which is the initiation ceremony, and Bapuru, which is the funeral ceremony. You get a lot of people at a ceremony. It depends who the deceased was as well. Um, hundreds, hundreds of people. The sense that you get when you're at a, um, a ceremony is... is the closest thing I can link it to is like a festival. That's Joseph Brady, a multimedia digital artist from Melbourne. He's the programme director at the Mulka Project, the digital archive and museum attached to the Buku Larangay Arts Centre in Yirrkala. Uh, so I essentially run the day-to-day -day workings of the Mulka Project. Um, I work closely here with our two cultural directors, uh, Wukan Wanambi and Ranjipi Munangur. Like so many other whitefellas, Joseph never expected to find himself living among the Yolnu. It all started about seven years ago when he got a call from an old friend, Cade MacDonald, a coordinator at the centre. Cade told Joseph that when the centre ran out of bark that dry season, a prolific artist, an old woman called Nyapa Nyapa Yunapingu, had turned to painting acetates. 
She'd done over a hundred works featuring delicate mark making. Filing away her daily output of about five paintings, Will Stubbs, the manager, was struck by their beauty as an interrelated series. And it's a filigree of complexity, you know, of abstract existence that I've never seen before. It's just so beautiful. One is fantastic, but when you put five and you look through them, it's amazing. So when she made that stack herself of five, that is legitimately her art. But once someone starts curating that into what they think looks good, they're interfering with existence, with what happened. When Will told Cade he wanted to see random permutations of Nyapanyapa's art, Cade immediately thought of Joseph. And sure enough, he was intrigued. A gig like this of working with a with an amazing artist like Nyapa Nyapa and seeing her work, it was it was a pleasure to go, oh, wow. And so I would Skype with Nyapa Nyapa and Will and sort of we'd do drafts of it and we'd talk it through and see where it was going and then tweak the numbers a bit. Basically, he created an algorithm where these 115 or so works are selected um, from the pile, three at a time, and then carried forward and meeting the other three going back into that pile. Essentially it takes her, her pile of artworks and shuffles them like a deck of cards and then it deals three of them out and then it takes those three and it lays them in whatever order it thinks, you know, in a random order and then it sets the opacity but it's not entirely random. And the funny thing was, you know, after a couple of weeks Joseph rang me up and said, look, I'm really worried about something. And I said, what is it? He said, well, you know how you wanted it to be infinite? I'm really concerned that it may repeat itself every 300 million iterations. And I said, the artwork comprising Joe's almost eternally morphing combinations of Nyapa Nyapa's paintings framed in a light box was exhibited at the Sydney Biennale, the showcase for contemporary art. I was mesmerized when I saw it at the Museum of Contemporary Art and I assumed this innovative multimedia work was by a funky young duo. It's amazing to think the art is actually by an elderly Yolnu woman, and one who's had an unusual life, including being gored by a buffalo. Nyapa Nyapa's life story was told in a performance by the Bengara Dance Theatre at the Sydney Opera House in 2016, which Will took her to see. That collaboration would change the life of Joseph Brady, his wife and their young children. The programme director job came up at the Mulca Centre and Will and Cade knew who'd be the perfect taker. So they just just hounded us for, for ages until we eventually broke and they brought us up here and then within 24 hours of being here we went, ah, oh, right, okay, this is what you guys have been talking about. And, then um, had to just go home and shut up our life in Melbourne that we'd been developing for the past, you know, 20 years and then just move it all here. Yeah, um, we've got a music program through here now. First one being Dappenbao Yunapingu. She's the first single off the ranks. She's the daughter of the lead singer of Yatta Yindi. And so she's carrying on his legacy. So we'll give her a big push and um, yeah, just promote her as well we can and then move on to the next artist.
Whether it's recording ancient rituals or contemporary performers, the Malka Centre is a thriving digital hub used by young and old. People wander in all the time to view the 500 or so films that show bungu, or traditional ceremony. So the same way you might re-watch like a wedding video, it has that same appeal, but then also within it, um, it contains the song lines, the bungal um, of all different clans. And when a ceremony is done well, people want to re-watch it because it's such a, there's so many great moments within it. Um, so you do have people using it as cultural reference, but at the same time, it's also an entertainment piece. Like people are watching it um, for enjoyment because it's a great thing to watch. Like Jeremy, Joseph and his family have been adopted into the Yolnu community and given gurutu, or kinship status. Here to be given gurutu by anyone means that you're connected to everyone. We're all connected as one family and that's a really great thing to step into a world where for all intents and purposes I should be a stranger and I should have to work really hard to be forming relationships with people you're instantly given this gift. What are the obligations that go with that then? Uh, the, the obligations are, I guess that anybody can ask anything of me and I can ask anything of them. My children have so many grandmothers in this town and they treat my children like their grandchildren and, and you know, that, that same love is, is there. It's this, I guess it's the same obligation that you know, that you would have in any family set up like that. Like, and it changed us, me and my family, really quickly. Um, I think we were here for six months before we went back to Melbourne and just got epic culture shock from hitting, hitting a city. Um, a huge part of that, I guess, is going from a city to what's essentially a sea change living in Yurikala, but then there's a whole nother level of thinking and um, the way you sort of function and live in, in Yerikala and in a sort of a Jungle society that definitely ruins you for, for living anywhere else. I mean, heading back to Melbourne was just overwhelming. I remember riding down Brunswick Road in, in a in tax back of a taxi uh, in gridlock slowly watching cars rolling in the opposite direction and just having that sense that every one of those cars was full of complete strangers and the next car didn't know the people in that car and just that sense of, of disconnectedness was, was a real epic. Lots of people who now live in the remote and regional parts of the indigenous art world have happily abandoned city life. I was burning out in Sydney in the 70s. It was the days of sex, drugs and androgyny. As the owner of the respected Raft art space in Alice Springs and Hobart, Dallas Gold has an unlikely CV. He always intended to go to art school, but ended up as a chef and caterer instead. Then one day in a staff canteen at Newcastle University, he had an epiphany. I was dishing up lunch one day to an art, like a line of arts lecturers I came out from the other campus because I was making good food and I was halfway dishing up a curry and one of the lecturers said, well, why don't you come and do the course? And I had 
that moment where I had no idea why I was holding a ladle and a plate, I realised that that's why I came to Newcastle for. There was no need for me to do this anymore, so I quickly got a folio together and got in as a mature-age student. So one Saturday I did my last wedding job and on the Sunday packed all my gear up and on the Monday was at art school making pinch pots. <laughs> Felt like I was in a therapy group after 10 years in hospitality working 80 hours a week with no holidays or anything. I was, I was in heaven. After graduating, Dallas moved to Darwin and practised as an artist for a while. Ten years after that conversation in the curry queue, along with the New Zealand artist Peter Adset, he opened Raft in a rent-free space donated by a friend at Francis Bay. From its beginning in 2001, Raft was about exploring difference and seeing Indigenous art as a movement in dialogue with other forms of contemporary art. The first exhibition featured Kimberley artist Rusty Peters in conversation with Adset. Rusty and Peter sat down and, and worked out a palette and format and how it was going to happen. Rusty coming from his traditional of paint, Kimberley, like that Mormonesque sort of uh, Rover Thomas style of work, and then um, Gidja and Peter being white, Parkia from New Zealand Catholic, abstract expressionist would come from his tradition of paint. Rusty painted the first painting, Peter responded and so it went to and fro. They didn't paint at the same time, they just responded to each other's works. Rusty, the first painting he painted was the spirit entering the embryo in the womb, you know, coming that. So that was such a powerful work that Peter had to read and respond with his hard sort of edge, sort of abstract expressionist work and Rusty could read his work, which is amazing because Rusty could look at Peter's work and get it straight away and so it went. So Peter and I sat down and worked out a mission statement. We wanted to show Indigenous art as contemporary art and we believe it's a movement in art and watching what Peter had been doing with Rusty Peters, we, that we saw there was something happening between the different non-figurative visual language, something that happened in the difference. That bell, by the way, is the sound of the Chapman and Bailey art supply store adjacent to Raft's current premises in Alice Springs. Mark Chapman moved his store there to service the growing desert art movement. A place called Raft might sound out of place in landlocked Alice, but its Darwin origins tell a great story. It starts after the war, when an old, itinerant, Scottish-born Australian artist called Ian Fairweather washed up in Francis Bay, Darwin. And we opened at Francis Bay, and that was right just metres away where Fairweather built the raft. And, where, and when you go to Darwin as an artist, Fairweather's part of the mythology of the place because he carved out a visual language by, by living throughout... Asia and living in town camps with Aboriginal people, that he'd formed this visual language that has influenced so many people after him. Down and out in 1952, Fairweather was upset when a consignment of his paintings got lost en route from London to Sydney. He conceived the bizarre idea of building a raft and sailing to East Timor. The raft was so small he couldn't stand up, but armed with a few tins of food, eight gallons of water and a 30-shilling compass, 
he lashed himself to the mast and set sail. And he, he did that crazy thing where he set off in his raft and had his proverbial night sea journey, and which informed his later work. It sort of culminated all his experiences. Fairweather, can you believe that was his name, got caught up in foul weather and was blown off course. Drenched and hallucinating, his obituaries already published in the Australian press, he lay on the raft staring up at the night sky. In his delusional state, he composed drawings in his head better than anything he'd ever done, and he'd remember them. After 16 days, Ian Fairweather made it to Roti in Indonesia, where he was promptly arrested. And then he was repatriated to England, and then he came back to Australia and lived off Bridey Island and did you know, an amazing body of work. So that, that story is just, it described, you know, Raf was, you know, celebrating difference. It's a vessel that travels around celebrating difference and all, it just described perfectly what, it's a great metaphor. So, and it's taken me on a great journey. Raf explores, celebrates, and saves. And, well, hopefully. <laughs> Save me. <laughs> you're going to start from, you're going to stay here now? You're going to start from here? Okay. Tonight, we've got a really special show. Um, Yurikala Mob. This is our Yurikala Mob. And the, the boards on the walls are all recycled uh, stage. It's called the Bangara Dance, uh, Bangara Boards because these, all these boards have been danced on before they were painted. So it's the recycled um, stage that, uh, that from a Bangara production at Yokala. So the boards were just spontaneously painted over at the beginning? As my understanding would have it, and because there's some, some of the boards even have graffiti on them and they've just painted over the top of it because one of Nongara's works has got bad dog written on it and it's... It's just still there. Not only do the boards have history and all that sort of stuff, which is important. Well, that's what the artists said that that was important to have. It gives it... It's just the format of the work. Because normally barks are a certain format. They're narrow. And if they're um, vertical... And these allow for horizontal and the nuance in the marks. You, because it's over such a large area, you, you get into that. Um, bravery in the marks and the looseness of it and the wash over a large area it's, you get lost in it Dallas has now held over 200 exhibitions at Raft exploring cross-cultural themes and framing indigenous and regional art in fresh iterations the Bangara Dance Sports show in 2015 sold out before opening night but Raft's beginnings weren't auspicious remember it was 2001 and a note here, the long grass people Dallas mentions refers to Aboriginal people who've left their communities for whatever reason and are camped out on the outskirts of town. Then it was September 11 and all that happened in New York and everyone was in shock. And I remember even um, long grass people were talking about it and they were in shock, you know, what's happening? And I thought, oh, you know, will art still make sense, you know, because I'm just about to have a a big event where that was my first major exhibition where a lot of sort of collectors were coming and I thought, oh, does art, you know, will this still make sense? I was, everyone was sort of, it was just a shock. Anyway, when I walked into that space, I just felt 
so emotionally overwhelmed by the work. It was, it was so amazing. It made even more sense. Of course, it made sense. And this is what the thing, the power of art. I'm a true believer in art of all all forms. In you know, in my area is visual art, but of course, music and everything else. It's it's just the best that it, that we have to offer. It. The best thing that is to be a, to be human. Communication that goes beyond all the other stuff that happens around it. You know, the politics and the and the money and it it operates and it has a deep integrity and especially indigenous art because it comes from a very very deep place. And I would like to say something. As a as a chairman of the popular guy, like to say thank you very much, everybody. Here we are today from different art art centres, different coordinators. Managers. I'd like to say thank you very much for your time and for your presence in Aranda country. We're here standing in their land, in their ancestors, in their knowledge, in their great-grandfathers, and we're here pay respect to their country and to their, their culture as well. Thank you very much, everybody. Welcome to on this particular area to to raft that share the knowledge, share the wisdom. As you can see, the different painting here today, whether it's public or non-public, sacred or sacred, all this tied into the land, all this tied into the land where we come from, where. As, as an people and the other side of it is that um, as Australians as in general we still haven't worked out who we are in this place and we haven't really got a strong relationship um, with indigenous people and this art uh, is a great common language there's something about it thank you very much everybody for your time and for your presence thank you Like when I visit the collectors and see their work and see how much they love and how how it sort of enriches their life and how much they're into it, and what they find out along the way, they're not really into the secret. They want to don't want to know the secret sacred. They want to honour that. And I think anthropologists and other people try to drill down into what certain things mean, but collectors. They just have uh, an emotional response to the work, and they know a work is powerful. They don't need to know why it's powerful. That was Meet the Matrix, episode four in our series Heart of Artness, about the cross-cultural interactions that swirl around the Aboriginal art world. This Welcome to Country was by Yinamala Gumana, former chair of the Buku Laringay Arts Centre, at the exhibition Yurikala Mob and Gara Boards at Raft Gallery in Alice Springs. Thanks to Yunamala and to Wukun Wanambi who accompanied him. Thanks also to Dallas Gold, Jeremy Cloak, Joseph Brady and Will Stubbs, and to Judy Muller, Rourke Lewis and Mark Chapman. We'll come back to them next episode. The series is devised and produced by me, Siobhan McHugh, 
With the support of Margot Neal, Senior Indigenous Curator at the National Museum of Australia, and art historian Ian McLean, Hugh Ramsay Chair of Contemporary Art at the University of Melbourne. The series is a University of Wollongong research project funded by the Australian Research Council. You can hear other episodes on our website. Just search for Heart of Artness. And you can see pictures there of the amazing art and of all the people we've talked to. Catch your next episode. Oh, you're sorry now.